welcome to Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster. This week I will be speaking with author D. Michael Thomas about his latest book, Beefer's Brigadier General Stephen Elliott Jr. General Stephen Elliott rose from captain of a militia artillery battery to command of an infantry brigade. His early war reputation as a daring raider and superb artilleryman grew to true hero status through his exemplary service at Fort Sumter. Handpicked to defend Sumter to the last extremity, Elliott performed so well that his northern foes saluted him by dipping the Union flag in recognition of his courage and steadfastness. Wounded on five separate occasions, Elliott exemplified courage and inspirational leadership that justified promotions advocated by Generals Robert E. Lee and P.G.T. Beauregard and Confederate President Jefferson Davis. In the first in-depth study of Elliott, D. Michael Thomas presents the life of a renowned soldier with fresh, previously unpublished material. D. Michael Thomas is a lifelong student of the war between the states. He holds a B.A. in history from the Citadel and is a U.S. Navy veteran of Vietnam. He spent several years as a volunteer of the Chesterfield Historical Society in Virginia, providing research, writing newsletter articles, and serving on the board of directors. His first book was Wade Hampton's Iron Scouts, Confederate Special Forces, from the History Press in 2018. Michael, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. I've, uh, I appreciate you having me uh, uh, here on this. Yes, sir. Now, Stephen Elliott, he's probably best known for the crater at Petersburg, Virginia, because he's basically right there when it happens. Uh, in the Titan, right nearby. But here in Charleston, he's known as a commander at Fort Sumter, and of course he's known uh, very well down in Beaufort. But what in his early life is going to prepare him to face what he's going to encounter throughout the war? Well, um, he, uh, had, he saw a lot of action before he ever came to uh, Fort Sumter. Uh, I think it was his personality as much as anything, but uh, he had uh, he had a, a, a drive to do his duty, and um, uh, he saw uh, quite a bit of action. In fact, he was a he was a pirate, uh, or he was declared a, par- a pirate by the United States uh, uh, government in 1861, right after the war started. Uh, he commanded. Uh, he saw a battle at uh, Port Royal mm-hmm. as, for, as uh, fort, fort commander, and he was a partisan raider uh, down in Beaufort. Uh, additionally, he saw uh, substantial action uh, as artillery commander uh, during the Battle of uh, Pocatalago in October of 1862. Uh, he just saw a lot of a lot of small action, but it was all from the front, and uh, he established quite a reputation. Uh, uh, for his uh, uh, his fine work um, with all his uh, his uh, commanding officers. Yes, sir. And we're gonna and I want to get more towards Port Royal and Beaufort also, but also just before the war started and before his exploits in that area, um, before, you know, whether it was you know with the artillery volunteer artillery in the Beaufort area, just what you know before the war yes. led to that. Um. Uh, Buford had the uh, prestigious uh, Buford Volunteer Artillery. It was a militia unit, uh, a superb uh, 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 unit. Uh, everyone wanted to be in it. Uh, and Elliot was not only just in it, but he served a, a period as uh, first, first lieutenant and uh, trained under a West Point graduate to handle artillery uh, in, all, uh, in every in every way. 
and he, he and right before the war he had served four years as as the commanding officer of the Beaufort Volunteer Artillery, and uh, he and the uh, and his unit uh, were superbly trained. And at one point, the uh, the Beaufort Volunteer Artillery was termed a model company by the area commander uh, in Beaufort. So that had a, a great deal of, uh, um, uh, well, it, it helped him a lot. Uh, it, uh, some people knew his name, and he had experience with, with guns and ordnance of all kinds. Yeah, so he had plenty of experience going in, and if you're in one of those artillery, you know, part of his show, uh, we know that from diaries, you know, I don't know about Buford, but I know from some of here, it's, you know, dressing up in your uniform, kind of showing off a little bit while you did do some serious training. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, there is some training that does go into it, um, back, especially back then, because they took it seriously also. Um, it's not just a time to get together and have fun. Um, so he was, he did have some experience going into, and you'll see that in the book when, uh, when uh, our listeners buy the book and read it. And it's not just a book about the South Carolina area, and it's not just a book about Fort Sumter or the crater. It's an all-encompassing book of this man's life in the yes. Civil War. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, his, his early... Uh, I, I, I go back to, to his, his, uh, his, his personality uh, all through uh, the letters he wrote and all through uh, his reports. Um, he, was, he was a man... Uh, if you assigned him a duty... He was going to carry it out to the full extent. He he would devote himself uh, to to accomplishing whatever his mission was, and if it was to be the best artillery command, that's what he was going to shoot for. Um, it, it's just everything in there. He was driven to excel, uh, just absolutely uh, devoted to carrying out uh, his missions. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And Port Royal, you know, I would be surprised because I used to work at Drayton Hall. I've said it on the podcast before. And when we would talk about the Civil War and we talk about literally brother fighting brother, there were Drayton relatives related to the Draytons from Drayton Hall. You had Thomas and Percival Drayton, Thomas on the southern side, Percival on the northern side, because that branch of the Drayton family had moved to Pennsylvania. Thomas wanted to fight for the south, Percival for the north. And you had Percival in the Union Navy coming into Port Royal to fight. And Thomas firing the artillery at him, coming uh, when he was coming up the river into the harbor there. So it is a war of brother yep. against brother. But this battle is really important, and it's not a battle that you would you would think would be more well known, even to the layperson who studies the Civil War. But it's important to the blockade and the Anaconda Plan because the North needed Absolutely. a foothold here. Can you talk a little bit about why the North needed a foothold in the South? And what role did Elliot play in this battle that would get him noticed by Confederate brass? Well, uh, 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 Buford was one of three uh, uh, possible locations uh, considered by the U- by the U.S. Navy uh, to uh, as a site for establishing the, a supporting uh, a facility for the South Atlantic uh, blockading uh, fleet. Um, at, initially, it was the last of the three. The, the, the other two, uh, St. Helena, um, and uh, uh, and another one up above uh, 
up above Charleston were considered. But it came down to, uh, uh, well, one of the things why uh, Buford was not considered uh, the top choice at first was because um, Stephen Elliott knew uh, was it was a threat. He had a reputation, a pre-war reputation, as being an expert artilleryman, and he knew every foot uh, of the uh, of the area. Uh, the Union Navy saw that as a threat because they wanted a uh, base that was secluded and safe from any any uh, threat from Confederate forces. Eventually, they changed their mind and made Buford their first choice. And uh, uh, <clears throat> but they were fully aware of of, uh, of Stephen Elliott, even though he was simply a captain at the time. Now, and they needed this, and the Union did need this port because they're going to be using it as a resupply of ships that are in the blockade, right? Absolutely. Uh, they uh, these ships uh, needed a place for upkeep, uh, for repair, uh, supplies. Uh, they also saw Buford as a potential launch point to sever the Charleston and Savannah Railroad, which uh, ran fairly close by. It was a critical uh, uh, railroad, and so there were multiple uh, reasons. Uh, Buford was was finally selected, but the fleet needed a base for supply, uh, repair, and upkeep, and it, it, they they wound up uh, uh, selecting Buford as the as the top choice. Now at this time, Captain Elliot, he's going to be around the Port Royal Buford area for a while in the war, and especially early in the war. Did the Confederates ever have any real hope of removing the Federals from the area, or was this or was the action around Port Royal and Beaufort, more of an act of containment. No, they uh, they never. Uh, there was never any any plan to retake Beaufort. Um, the uh, <clears throat> the Battle of Port Royal um, uh, demonstrated that the uh, the heavy guns, the the rifle cannon, the big heavy guns that the fleet had, um, couldn't be stopped. Uh, it happened that. The day after uh, the Battle of Port Royal, General Robert E. Lee arrived in the area as uh, district or as uh, as uh, as uh, commander of the uh, Department of South Carolina, Georgia, and East Florida, and he gave orders to move back from the coast, uh, away from the fleet guns, and set up uh, defenses against any. Uh, landings and assault by ground. They said, he said that's the only way we're going to be able to do it. There never was any any plan whatsoever for uh, the re- recapture of uh, Beaufort. The South just did not have resources uh, to be able to, to you know to accomplish that. And I want to move on now to because uh, there's there's a lot more that goes into it. It's very intricate in detail. But I want obviously like, we don't want to give everything in the book away because we want people to buy the book. So let's move to Fort Sumter, because uh, a lot of times people just think about Fort Sumter. When you, and I've been to Fort Sumter many times. I know you've been to Fort Sumter many times. You've been to Fort Moultrie many times. 
It's always, yes. I don't know about you, but it's always surprising to me when people realize, hey, wow, it wasn't just the first battle that took place here. There were actually other, you know, there was a lot of uh, fighting around the forts in the area. Um, there was actual, you know, attempts to take Fort Sumter back. But Fort Sumter sits in our harbor here in Charleston. And before Elliot finds himself at Fort Sumter, the site had held off what was supposed to be, well, it was supposed to be a better coordinated assault from northern forces. Um, but there really wasn't a strategic reason for the North to take the fort, but it was an important symbol for the North to take Sumter back. Can you talk about what shape Sumter would be in when Major Elliot, now Major Elliot, arrives in the reason for the fort's condition? Yes, the uh, the fort was uh, an absolute uh, shambles. Um, in in August of uh, of sixty of eighteen sixty three, the fort was pounded by what's called the first great bombardment, uh, something on the order of uh, seven thousand uh, three hundred heavy shells from uh, Union uh, guns from the fleet and those uh, rifle cannon from uh, or you know based on Morris Island had reduced it to pure shambles. In fact, um, 39 of the 40 guns at Sumter were either dismounted or uh, covered in rubble. The fort was absolutely defenseless. The only gun it had left was uh, pointing toward Charleston and could only be used uh, for evening and morning color salutes. So uh, uh, General Beauregard uh, and others uh, entertained the possibility of abandoning the fort, just turning it over to the Union uh, troops. But Beauregard said, no, no, it will be defended, it will become an infantry post, and uh, it will never be surrendered. He gave explicit orders that it was never to be surrendered without his authorization. So when he walked, so when Major Elliott arrived at Fort Sumter, it was uh, a Spartan and crude uh, a facility as you could ever imagine. There was, there was, uh, it was just pure shambles. And if you, if you've never been to Fort Sumter, or to uh, talking to our listeners now, it's a man-made island, and I can't imagine taking seven thousand shells onto that area. And the fort actually had different levels than what it has now, and the American flag in the center, on top of Battery Huji, which is it was you know turn of the century battery that was in the middle of the fort now um, if you look at the satellite images the big black part in the middle of the fort there's the flagpoles there and the american flag there's a red mark that shows you how tall the fort used to be so that's the debris that michael's talking about where all that masonry has collapsed down um yes. it's incredible to think about how just that amount of debris and rubble um you know and i've heard the park rangers say that that rubble actually helped to like strengthen the fort you know, I don't know, you know, I can't really speak to that myself or not, but I, you know, I know that it, I can't imagine what it would be like to be isolated out there on an island, man-made island, taking that many shells. Well, that was, uh, that was just a uh, prelude to what was going to happen later on. Yeah. But the, uh, the, uh, the rubble, um, did play an important part in, uh, in protecting uh, one of the lower tiers of the fort, the bottom tier uh, kept uh, some of the uh, uh, the passageways and the uh, uh, the arches uh, 
safe from from falling. And so later on, as the fort was bombarded, all those shells did uh, to, in some instances, was to pulverize the already big, well, the big pieces of rubble, make them into smaller pieces of rubble. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, the, the fort was just in no, uh, it had been reduced from three stories to one. Tell us a bit about some of the action that Elliot's going to see while he's in command of Fort Sumter. Well, um, <clears throat> first, uh, 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 well, Major Elliot was handpicked by General PGT Beauregard with, and, and, and to, uh, to command Sumter. And his orders were to hold and defend Sumter to the last extremity. Um, and from the first day he arrived, he began setting up uh, defenses. Um, he realized the, the, the most serious threat was from small boat attacks at night, um, the, uh, the boats being filled with Union troops. And so um, he took great pains to cover every weak point with uh, troops designated for one position and other troops for another position. Um, and that paid off handsomely on the, because on the fourth night of uh, command, um, a Union boat, a small boat assault took place. <clears throat> and they found, uh, well, well, the action was over in about 20 minutes, and about 130 Federals were killed or captured. Um, one Federal officer who was involved said, the uh, fort's uh, defenses were so stout that 5,000 men could not have taken it that night. So Elliot was 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 fully aware. Uh, he kept the fort garrison uh, vigilant uh, during his command because of the small boat attack uh, uh, threat. <clears throat> but at the same time, he and his uh, superb engineers began working to making uh, you know strengthening the defenses. Uh, enlarging the uh, interior quarters to allow for uh, a bit more comfort for the troops and to be able to keep a larger uh, supply or, yeah, keep a larger amount of supplies. They were so dependent on on the uh, nightly boat trips uh, for, re, for resupply. But everything he did was, was to strengthen the fort, to hold the fort, and to... Uh, ensure that uh, work continued to enhance the fort's interior. And let's jump ahead now to May of 1864 when he becomes a full colonel. And so he gets, um, he heads rather to Virginia and he's away from Fort Sumter. And this sets him on a course with the famous crater. Um, yeah. For our listeners who don't know about the crater in Petersburg, will you tell us a little bit about the crater and where Elliot is when what happens when what the event at the crater occurs? Well, yes, um, <clears throat> Elliot was uh, promoted to colonel and uh, placed in command of an infantry regiment, the Holcomb uh, Legion Infantry Regiment, in early May of 1864, and sent to Virginia. He saw no action as uh, as uh, as its uh, uh, commanding officer. A month, after, well, less than a month after he arrived in Virginia, 
his brigade commander was killed or was uh, wounded and captured. And shortly afterward, Elliot was promoted to brigadier general after having been a colonel less than a month. He wound up in the fighting around Petersburg in in uh, June of 1864, and he provided excellent service uh, as a as a new uh, brigadier general. In time, though, uh, the siege of Petersburg uh, began, and his he and his troops were at what's called Elliot's Salient, and uh, it um, happened to be ground zero for the uh, a Union mine that was uh, dug under. Uh, well, it, it traveled over 500 feet and wound up exactly under his his uh, position. Uh, uh, the Confederates were pretty sure that something like that was being developed. Uh, Elliot and his uh, commanding officers made contingency plans in case a mine was exploded under their position. And those plans worked. But um, on July 30th, 1864, the mine uh, was exploded. Um, it basically destroyed two of his four regiments that he had with him. Um, but <clears throat> all the records state that, that uh, General Elliott uh, reacted with calmness and coolness. And, and called up the other two regiments he had uh, with intentions to um, face the enemy and, if possible, to uh, to attack them and drive them away. So that was those were the, briefly the circumstances uh, uh, surrounding his uh, his role at the crater. He did everything that he was supposed to in the early well the first thirty or forty minutes before he got wounded. And then that that took him out of the action. Uh, uh, then and uh, the battle went on for about another five hours. Uh, but he was involved in setting things up for the initial stages to contain the Union advance through the crater yeah. itself. Yeah, the, really, the framework for the defense for the day. Uh, yes, and you know, and I didn't realize until I read the book. Just that the news newspapers up north, they were talking about, I mean, just openly talking about the fact that they were digging a mine under the Confederate works. Just how, yes. I mean, kind of lightly saying, like, this is our plan. But how how hard and what were the Confederates, I was wondering, what were the Confederates doing to try to find these mines? How well, they, would you go about trying had, uh, to detect them? Uh, they dug... Uh... Uh, well, uh, uh, the best I can describe it is they uh, tried to dig uh, counter shafts. They dug shafts uh, hoping to intersect uh, the mine. Uh, they had listening devices where they could detect movement underneath. Um, they didn't dig quite deep enough, um, and the, the uh, Federals were very cautious in their um, in trying to avoid making un unnecessary noises, uh, you know, that could be heard uh, above them. Um, but the Confederates had, certainly had an idea that, that it was going to happen. And uh, they did make contingency plans um, around the area they 
made additional uh, uh, fortifications behind salients, uh, Elliot's uh, salient to stop any attack. They brought in uh, cohorn uh, mortars, which are short-range mortars um, for use in blunting an attack. So there were there were good uh, contingency plans made in Elliot's role. Um, was carried out perfectly. He did. He did exactly what 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 uh, he was supposed to do, and he knew what was going to what was behind them. He knew what was going, uh, you know, what was available. So the uh, his 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 position at Fort Sumter, where he and he he personally endured uh, over twenty thousand shells being fired at him in eight months. Um, geared him to not be uh, uh, destroyed or, or distressed by the by the crater, you, uh, you, by the mine uh, as it exploded. He was used to seeing things like that. It didn't it didn't scare him, and he reacted with uh, calmness and coolness by all accounts. He had nerves of steel. I mean, you, he he had to by this point. I'm sorry. He had to have nerves of steel by this point. Yes, yes, um, and and that was that was uh, a kind of a trademark uh, in everything that you saw, uh, or, or or you read about him. <clears throat> but uh, he had it didn't actually catch him by surprise, and he was used to being shelled. Uh, he was used to, to uh, these things, but he was confident, and he carried out uh, uh, his mission uh, when that when that. Uh, Mine was exploded, and even after he saw the destruction, he maintained his his coolness and calmly began issuing the uh, the uh, correct orders. And Michael, you know the story doesn't end there. He gets to come home to convalesce, and then we get he gets to see what's happening on the home front. And uh, but I want our listeners to read about that, and we don't want to give that away. But what I did want you to tell everybody <laughs> is when you're going to be up in. Petersburg, where the crater itself occurred. Ah, uh, yes, I'm. I'm going to be in uh, in uh, Petersburg, uh, July 25th. Um, the Petersburg National Battlefield Park is uh, uh, is uh, commemorating the uh, Battle of the Crater that weekend. That's a, that's a Saturday, and uh, they've asked me to uh, to be the speaker and present the story of uh, of uh, General Elliot. Uh, on that day. I'm looking forward to it. That's a huge honor. I'm really happy you get to do that. That's going to be great. Yes, sir. Well, Michael, I think our time together has come to an end, and I just want to say, again, thank you for being on today. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Michael, and thanks to you, the audience, for listening. You can find Michael's book, Confederate General Stephen Elliott, online at ArcadiaPublishing.com or at your local bookstore. While you're at ArcadiaPublishing.com, look for other books on your town by entering your zip code to the search bar. Are you interested in being a local history author? Does your town or state have a story that needs to be told? Scroll down to the bottom of any page of our website and click the Make Me an Author button to learn how to write a book with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. Once again, I want to thank Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the theme song for the podcast. And you can find them on Facebook under the name Jane Bill's Unnamed Band Project. I'll talk to you again soon.